study called blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. You guys are getting better at it. You're, you're getting along the, the way. I may actually take it off the sign. Nah, we'll just leave it on. Um, but uh, we're, we're, we're kind of journeying through this book. This book, it, it, it deserves an introduction every, uh, every time we approach it so that we, we understand what's going on. This is a, um, this is a book that is composed. Uh, it is a, 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 a masterful anthology of human wisdom meant to illuminate the failure of human wisdom to really do what we want it to do. And it illuminates that so that we can see in contrast, we can see the wisdom of God and the difference between the two. Now, and so as a result, a lot of it sounds good. It, it, it has kind of a, a cadence and a sound that, that sounds really good, but when you actually read it often, it doesn't conclude the way that you think it should. And while it's true that you can find truth everywhere, not everything is truth. And so we have to kind of look at this. Um, this is uh, really God using Solomon uh, around the year 1000 BC to bring together the, the culmination of human wisdom so that we can see in his conclusion, he says, at the end of all of this, he says, remember your creator and follow him and worship him in the days of your youth because all of this human wisdom doesn't accomplish much at all. This morning we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 uh, and... We're going to read through this, but just for the sake of of, um, everybody being on the same page, I want to kind of recount uh, very briefly the reign of Solomon. Uh, Solomon was the son of the first real king of a unified Israel. Israel is located in the Middle East. Pretty much everybody uh, knows where Israel is. They're in the news all the time, so all these really cool graphics that go along with it. Um, but the nation of Israel is, uh, this is really thousands of years ago, about 3,000 years ago, God united a group of, of kind of a loose confederacy of uh, a lot of people call them Jews, but they're Hebrews. They, they spoke a, a, a language. They come out of Egypt together, um, but they were very loosely affiliated. And God united them under a ruler, a monarch named David. Um, now, we, I have a series that I wrote for last year that I never did called Chaos and Kings that eventually we're going to get into because David is one of the most fascinating characters in Scripture. He is absolutely the keystone linchpin of the entire Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. He's a, an amazing guy. Uh, But David ruled for about 40 years, and he united the nation of Israel, and he gives them three things that a nation needs in order to operate. Number one, he gives them a capital. He conquers a city called Jerusalem, uh, uh, basically just an outpost on a mountain, really. It wasn't much of a city, but it was fortified and difficult to take. He captures it, and he makes it his capital, and he gives them a single government center. And then secondly, he gives them a language. Most of the, of the Hebrew that you, exists in the, in the Old Testament, at least up until Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, uh, not in the prophets, but, but all of that part of the Hebrew, uh, old, uh, Hebrew scriptures, we, ha- we have David to thank for the language that it appears in. He's called the sweet psalmist of Israel. He really crafts the Hebrew language to honor God and and. and you can ask me one day offline about, about Hebrew because it is, it is a language defined by God. It is not a language that defines things, but rather it is defined by God and the worship of God. Um, it's a really a fascinating language. 
So he gives them a unifying language, and he gives them particularly the Psalms. He writes a lot of the Psalms in the, the, book of the Bible, book of the Bible, the Psalms. A lot of those are written by David. He gives them a language to express the worship of the third thing that they needed. They had a capital, um, they had a language, but they needed one God. If you read the scriptures prior to David, pretty much, in fact, it's the refrain of the book of Judges, which is a book of the Bible previous to David, that every man did whatever was right in his own eyes. If they felt like worshiping a Canaanite God, they worshiped a Canaanite God. If they felt like worshiping the God of Israel in their own way, they worshiped the God of Israel in their own way. If they felt like obeying their own set of rules, they did. And David says, and you can read this at the end of the book of First Chronicles, the end of the book of Second Samuel, he says to the people of Israel, look, this God, the God of the Bible, he, his covenant name in Hebrew is Yahweh. This God is my God. He's the God who made all this to happen. And if you want to be blessed, he has to be your God. No other gods, no other worship, no other temples. This God. So he gives them these three things, these three amazing ideas. A central capital, a central language, and a central faith, a central God. This was something that, that these people had not had before. And, and this nation is poised for greatness. And there's all kinds of chaos that happens because David sins. He loses the four of his sons um, because of his sin. Um, and I'm not going to get into the details of that, but it's, it's in the book of 2 Samuel. You can read it. Um, and he loses four of his sons, three of whom, one was an infant, but three of whom were his chosen successors. And the rule of the nation rolls to his oldest surviving son from one wife, and his name is Solomon. And Solomon is kind of thrust into the center of things. He's a young man. He's not very old. He's probably in his teens, possibly in his 20s when he, when he, when he takes over. He rules for about 40 years. He does a phenomenal, phenomenal job of continuing David's work. So much so that in the book of 2 Kings, um, and, and I'm not going to dwell here, you don't really have to look at it, but in the book of, I'm sorry, 2 Kings, what am I thinking? 1 Kings, in the book of 1 Kings and chapter 10, the description of David's rule is like some kind of, or uh, Solomon's rule is some kind of utopia. It says the weight of the gold that Solomon received yearly was 666 talents. That's a, a lot of gold. That is the equivalent uh, today of just a gross national, a, a, an import. A What's the opposite of a national deficit? A national uh, surplus, right? Couldn't remember that word. I talks for a living. Um, but they had a surplus of literally hundreds of billions of dollars, the equivalent today, just flowing into this nation. And that did not include the revenues from merchants and traders and from all the Arabian kings and the governors of the land. Solomon made 200 large shields of hammered gold. 600 pekas of gold went into each shield. Again, a lot of gold. Um, he made 300 small shields of hammered gold, three minas. The king made a great throne in verse 18, laid with ivory, overlaid with fine gold. The throne had six steps in its back. And it just goes through in this, this huge description. Verse 23, King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. The whole world sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom that God put in his heart. Year after year, everyone who came brought a gift, articles of silver and gold, robes, weapons and spice and horses and mules. It's just, this is a world, this is, according to this passage, 
just a time of unprecedented prosperity for this group of people who a hundred years before were a bunch of nomads trying to carve their living out of the hills of Judea while the Canaanites owned the plains. This is a total revolution. It is, it is completely different. And if we just read this, we go, wow, that was awesome. But did you notice who has all this wealth flowing in? King Solomon has it. We read elsewhere in the scriptures, when Solomon dies, the book of 1 Kings in chapter 12, uh, after Solomon dies, the representatives of the people of Israel go to his son, Rehoboam, and they say to him, your father burdened us so much, we have nothing left to give. Now, Rehoboam doesn't listen. As a result, the kingdom splits. But there's even this appearance in Second Chronicles chapter 10 and verse 18. There is actually a guy called, in Hebrew, Solomon's Al-Hamis. Al-Hamis means slave master. That Solomon had a slave master. Now hold up. Suddenly the utopia doesn't look quite as good, does it? Because in the book of Leviticus, the king of Israel or the ruler of Israel was expressly forbidden to oppress his brothers. He was expressly forbidden to enslave those who worshipped his God. Now, in the law, it was perfectly okay to enslave those who did not worship your God. But under this law, if you were a worshiper of Yahweh, you were not... You, you could not enslave another worshiper of the God. Now, they could choose to serve you for a certain period of time. They could make a choice to be your slave, but you could not make them a slave. And yet here we have Solomon in, in uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 10 where he is, he is enslaving. He's got a slave master. In fact, as you, when you read it, and this is I, I love the figurative language here, so I'm going I'm to go ahead and, and, and get it. When the the leaders, the elders of the tribes of Israel come to him, they say, your father, they come to Rehoboam, Solomon's son, and they say, your father put a heavy yoke on us. But now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us and we will serve you. They say, look, man, we're walking around carrying the weight of Solomon's utopia and it hurts. It's heavy, it's hard. If you've ever had to try to haul something by, by putting a, a, like a harness on your, on your shoulders and try to drag something, it hurts. It's hard. And this is what Rehoboam says. This is, this is awesome. My little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke and I will make it even heavier my father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. Now, whoever wrote that speech really did not understand what people want to hear. I mean, this is not a speech that you give and go, everybody goes, yeah, we're going to vote for him. And as a result, the, the nation splits. But I, I use all that to just kind of illuminate what we're about to read in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Because... This is the world that this, this passage reflects on. Here we go. Ready? Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Solomon is writing this. He says, Again, 
I looked and saw all the oppression, the oppression that was taking place under the sun. Now, who is responsible for the oppression? Solomon. I looked out and saw all these people I had enslaved, and I noticed. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they had no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they had no comforter. I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. And I love this one. But better than both is he who has not yet been, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. I love it. It is better. He says, it is better to be the oppressor than to be the oppressee. But if you're oppressed, at least it's better to be dead than if you were alive. But the best situation would be if you had never been born in the first place. Way to encourage and motivate people. I know life is hard, but it could be worse. You could be dead. Or better yet, you could not have lived at all. Thanks, boss. Appreciate it. How would you like it if your boss walked into the break room and spoke to you that way? Look, I know it's hard. I see your tears. I see that you're oppressed. It could be better. You could be dead. Or better yet, you could never have lived at all. You know, I mean, fantastic, great motivation. Here we go. So verse four, and I saw that all labor and all achievement, I love his sense of irony. I saw that all labor and all achievement springs from man's envy of his neighbor. This too is meaningless and chasing after the wind. And of course we paraphrase meaningless and chasing after wind, blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. I want to, I want to stop here for a second. Okay. What group of people are laboring that he's observing? What are they called? What does he call them? The oppressed, all right? The slaves. And he goes, and I noticed that they were all working because of the envy of their neighbor. Now, why do slaves work? Is it because they look around and go, hey, I want that too? They're working because they're slaves. Because somebody walked around, grabbed them, and, and roughed them up and said, you're going to be a slave. And maybe they said no, and they killed that person. And everybody said, okay, we'll be slaves. Great. Fantastic. You know, I can't wait to be a slave. Nobody says that. And so he, he's looking at them. He's saying, but I noticed that they, they work. The things that they do is an envy of their neighbor. And I can't help but wonder if there's not a little bit of self-reflection in what he says. Because the reason they're laboring and toiling is because Solomon is building a kingdom. And the way that Solomon was building his kingdom toward the end of his career, which we haven't really talked about, was that he saw himself in comparison to all of the other nations around him. And he envied what they had. And he married their daughters and their nieces and their mothers and and women. And he married a bunch of women and brought their belief systems into Israel and brought their architecture and their religions into Israel because he envied those around him. So really, why are they working? Because the oppressor is envious. But he says, okay, so they're laboring because they envy their neighbor. Well, what kind of neighbor do you you envy? Do you envy the neighbor who owns the same things as you? Do you envy the neighbor who works the same job as you? You always envy the neighbor who's got more. And one of the fascinating things about driving around in Merrimack is the weird, Merrimack and Bedford is the weird dichotomy you encounter. I love that you can drive down the road and see a trailer next to a mansion in this part of the country. It, 
it, it, blow, it really, I mean, it blows my mind. You drive down Bedford Road, and it becomes Jenkins Road as you go into Merrimack, uh, Bedford, and there are, there, are, there are like trailers, single-wides, double-wides. They're nice places. There are some that are not so nice. You know, but you're looking at, and then, bam, there's like this 8,000-square-foot building with four-car garage sitting right next to it. And you've got to imagine the guy that lives in the trailer walking out and going, you know? I mean, it's like, who needs a four-car? I mean, one of those garages is bigger than his house. We, and we, we, if we're not careful, we envy our neighbors. And this is what he says. He really says all the labor and toil, all the struggle, all the frustration of the wife comes because of envy of your neighbor. And that, that's, that's often true. And that's often true. We often work harder than we need to because we have things we want that we think we need. Um, we often try to accumulate as much money as we possibly can, ironically, so that we can accumulate more money. And the more money I put into my retirement account, the more money I'll make. Uh, just think about that for a second. You, you could just live on what you've got. Um, but not that retirement accounts are bad. Every time I say something like that, it gets taken out of context by somebody. So I'm not saying it's wrong to invest in your IRA. If I had one, I'd be investing in it too. But this envy, this, this envy that motivates, and I think the best illustration for it actually comes from the scriptures. It's a story that occurs later. When Israel splits in half, there are two kingdoms. There's the southern kingdom, Judah, uh, which apparently seems to have had um, most of the agriculture, um, and, then there's, and, and not as many people. And then there's a northern kingdom that gets called Israel that doesn't have agriculture but has industry, and they have a lot of people. They, they, they have a, a large population. So you're going to get divided between this agrarian society and this industrial society. And, and Israel is ruled for a little while. There's a bunch of kings that kill each other off. And then there's a rule, there's a rule by a group called the Omrids. Um, she's not even going to waste her time signing that. But, but they're after they're named after their founder a guy named Omri and Omri's one of his descendants that rules is a guy named Ahab and Ahab if you you read your if you went got through Sunday school you got Ahab got a bad rap and that's because he deserved it he was kind of a, a punk and and Ahab built this kingdom he builds a, a, a capital called Samaria and He's got everything in the world. He's one of the most powerful kings in the region at the time. And he's walking down the street in, in Second Kings chapter, or First Kings chapter, uh, I'm going to have to look at it. Uh, First Kings chapter something, 21. Um, First Kings chapter 1, he's walking down the street and he sees a vineyard owned by a guy named Naboth. And he says, I want your vineyard. I'm going to buy it from you. And Naboth says, I can't sell it to you. It's my family's vineyard. Ahab goes home, whines to his wife, and his wife has the guy killed so Ahab can take the vineyard. That's envy of your neighbor. You've got something I don't have. You, you, know, you have something I, I want. And, and he kind of he points on that. So here he goes. Ready? Now this is kind of an introduction to the idea he's going to contemplate loneliness for a few minutes. That's what he's going to dive into. Here he goes. In verse 5. The fool folds his hands and ruins himself. Now... now before I get too far, not the greatest translation of this phrase. The, the nearest thing that I can get, it, it actually means that he gnaws on his hands. That he gnaws on himself. So you can kind of, the visual is, uh, a fool is somebody who sits there biting their nails. A fool folds his hands and ruins himself. Apparently worrying about envying his neighbor and all the oppression that he's going under. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Blah, blah, blah. 
yada, yada, yada. He says, well, it's better that you've got what you've got. Now, what do they got? They're being what? Oppressed, enslaved. So it's better that you be happy for what you've got than be free and get more. You've got to follow the, kind of the, what he's saying. Again, I saw something meaningless after the sun, under the sun. Here he goes, verse 8. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother, and there was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. So he says, so look at one guy who's out in the field, being oppressed, working hard. He's building his, whatever it is that he's building, and he's accumulating wealth. Now, of course, we know he's kind of jumping back and forth, but really, these oppressed people, they were accumulating wealth for Solomon, not for themselves. But he says, you look out, and there they are, they're building their lives, and they're all alone. What's the point of it? They're all by themselves, they're lonely, they're, they're, and in the end, they're not going to have anything. Kind of an Ebenezer Scrooge picture. Then he says... Two are better than one, in verse 9, because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Now, let me ask you a question. How much, slave, how much work can one slave do? One slave's worth of work, right? How much work gets done if you have two slaves working? Two slaves worth of work. You put one guy in the field, he does one man's work. You bring a second slave in, he doesn't share the burden. He does his own work. So you put one guy in the field, he does a little bit of work. You take a second guy, you put him in the field. Now the first guy's got somebody to complain to, but they're still going to do the same amount of work. He says, look, so one guy in the field, he's by himself. Two guys in the field, they're still doing the same. They're still working. They're still miserable. They're still struggling. But hey, at least they get to complain to each other. just means i mean this is and that you know i might there's a couple of different ways this passage could be interpreted nobody's completely sure but this kind of fits with the context he says look at least if one slave falls down and there's another slave in the field he can pick him up so he can get back to work great idea also verse 11 if two lie down together they will keep warm but how can one keep warm alone Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Now, there is a tremendous truth in here. And we're going to kind of, we're going to draw out of it for a second. And we're going to kind of tap into what Jesus has to say about this and, and how the apostles interpret this idea of one guy working in the field, two people working in the field, three-fold cord, not easily broken. Because what Solomon is basically saying, hey, you do your work in your little ditch, and if there's another guy in another ditch, then you can complain to each other, and if one guy falls down, you can help him up so he can keep digging the ditch. This is not the reason that we work together. Now, let me, let me, I'm, all right, I'm about to, I'm about to go on a tirade that could be perceived as anti-American, so I just want to say right off the top, I love America, God bless America, okay? We got that covered? All right, good. In the Western world, in the American way of thinking, the individual is God. I want for me. Why do we elect people, and I'm not going to name specifics, but why do we elect people who offer us what we want? Is it for the good of the nation? No, it's for the good of me. 
Why? This is the reason that our government was set up to be ruled by law, not by democracy, because democracy is mob rule, and it's a bunch of people saying, this is what I want. And when a bunch of people say, this is what I want together, everybody else listens. This is not the way that things are supposed to be structured. But in our world, we have this idea of a rugged individualism that I can accomplish anything. What is the American dream? Which, by the way, a phrase that was not coined until the 20th century, if anybody's interested. But we say the American dream is to be able to accomplish what? Whatever you want. And then we penalize people who are better at it than the rest of the country. It's like, well, Bill Gates got whatever he wanted, so we've got to penalize him. Well, this is, the, this is our philosophy. You do whatever you want. And if whatever you want happens to be crushing the competition, stealing technology, let's not get into it. And, the, and here's the, the, the issue with that in conflict with Christ. Because this, is, this individualism is kind of reflected in what Solomon is saying. He's kind of saying, look, you work on your own, you dig your ditch. We bring a second guy in, he digs a ditch, and he might be able to help you if you fall down. But in the scriptures, there's a totally different way of approaching things according to Jesus. This is how, uh, this is how the Apostle Paul took what Jesus had to say about it. This whole division, individually, individualism thing. And I, I'm going to just tap one little verse. In the book of Galatians, in chapter 3. I put the wrong, there we go. In the book of Galatians, chapter 3, you are all, verse 26, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all of you who were baptized into Christ have closed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. An ongoing joke. How many, um, how many Baptists does it take to, to uh, change a light bulb? You know the answer to this joke? One Baptist to get the ladder. One Baptist to climb the ladder. Five Baptists to turn the ladder because the one on has already done his job and he's not going to actually turn. And then seven Baptists to form a committee to talk about how it worked. And, and here, here is the, the issue. It is this. We, we are so focused on individuality and we are, we are so formed by rugged individualism and the idea of the American dream that you can be whatever you can be, that we do that at the price of the oneness of Christ. As someone once said to me, one of the biggest problems about one of the biggest problems in churches in general is that people are allowed to do their own thing until something goes wrong. That you are allowed to labor in your kind of little well until something goes wrong. And then usually the response to the something goes wrong is um, somebody props you up so another person can knock you down. But this is not what we learned of Christ. Jesus says, or the Apostle Paul says, we are all one in Christ. Which means to take this oppressive image. Here we are digging in the ditch. One guy's digging in the ditch. And he hits a rock. Under Solomon's economy, this other guy digging in the ditch would go, well, rock. In God's economy, in the kingdom of Christ, 
what we learn from Christ is, hey man, let's, let's move the rock. Let's work together. Even beyond that is, as we come to it, Jesus actually tells a story, he tells a parable about counting the cost. He says, you don't build a tower until you make sure you can finish it. You don't wage a war unless you make sure that you can afford it. There's some advice we should follow in America. But um, we, we, we look at that and we go, man, there might be rocks in that hole. Rather than you fighting away at your little well and then calling people in when you hit trouble, why don't we get 10 or 11 guys in here with pickaxes? In fact, better yet, why don't we pool our money and get somebody with a backhoe? Then we can get about the important business of the ministry because the ditch's purpose is to put a swimming pool in and if if we get so consumed on, hey, you got a rock in your hole, we're never going to build the swimming pool. I don't usually do that, but I had to check and make sure where it was. According to Jesus, and according to what the Apostle Paul says, we are all one. That means that there is a difference here between what Solomon has to say about oppression and working by itself and what Jesus has to say. And the reason I bring that up is because what is one of Jesus' titles? He has a title that's very similar to a title that Solomon had, that he is the starts with a K and ends in ing. So everybody say it together. He is the... And he is the son of... Uh, nah, same title as Solomon, people. Keep up with me. Son of... David. So does that mean what Solomon said about oppression applies to Jesus? The answer is no. Because Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of one. It is not a kingdom of one as in you're a one and you're a one and you're a one and you're a one get in a row and pick cotton. It is, a, it, is a, it is a kingdom of one as in we are all one, all together, working together, moving together. And we are not individuals working away at our hole and digging our, 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 our agenda so that we can... And then got another guy over next to us digging a hole and doing his agenda. Now I worked in this kind of a situation. I worked in a situation where, where there, were, there were a bunch of us working and we were not allowed to interfere with each other's tasks. We were not allowed to say, hey, you want me to help you? Because that was their task. And this is your task. And stay on task. Here's your job description. Here's their job description. Never show the twain meet. We hired both of you to do two separate jobs. Don't work together. Nothing could be more anti-Christ. Then the idea of us not working together. Now, we say all that to, to kind of set up what he has to say. I want you to follow what Solomon says in the last part of this chapter. Because it is a sad self-reflection. Here we go. Better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to take warning. Now you see the heartache there. Here we have, this is one of the reasons that a lot of commentators believe that Ecclesiastes was written toward the end of Solomon's life. Because here he is looking at the oppression that he set up, knowing that he's going to pass it to his son. And he realizes he is an old foolish king who no longer takes advice. Now ironically, his son Rehoboam will be a young king who takes the wrong advice. Verse 14, The youth may have come from prison to the kingship, 
Or he may have been born into poverty within his kingdom. That's Solomon's dad. David rose from poverty. He rose from oppression. He rose from being um, basically his, his tribe at the time, although it was one of the larger tribes, his tribe of Judah was actually being picked clean by Saul for his armies to defend the rest of the country while Judah was being picked apart. Uh, David at one point is on the run because Saul, who is the, the previous king, and, and I don't actually class him as the first king of Israel, so if you're a Bible interpreting person, Saul is, is a huge mistake. Um, so, but anyways, um, David is at one point pursued into the wilderness by Saul because Saul uh, fears and envies David. And David is literally, he has, a, he has a death sentence on him. And yet he rises to be the king. Verse 15, I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. And who's the king's successor? Solomon. There was no end to all the people who were before them. But, and maybe seeing what's coming, those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Blah, blah, blah. Yada, yada, yada. He says, look, I looked out on the world and I saw all this oppression. I saw all these people working. And then I kind of looked at myself and realized that I was a one working. That my father had risen up from the ashes of persecution, from the ashes of a death sentence to become a great king because of his God and because he listened to the advice of his, of his men. And when I was young, I did it too. And I was a good king and I was a wise king and people followed me because I was doing what my father had done. But somewhere along the line, I became an old fool who would not take advice. And now I see that when I am gone off the stage, all of those who have acclaimed me and proclaimed my Father will turn against us. What's the point? Blah, blah, blah. Yada, yada, yada. I can't change the oppression I've created. I can't change the path that I'm on. I can't change the way things are going. And even though I realize it now in my old age, too late. The path is set. And I looked out and saw them working one and one and one. And then I looked in here and realized I was working one by myself. I wouldn't listen to advice. I wouldn't listen to those around me. I wouldn't listen to those who were trying to help me. In fact, I spurned them. I turned them away. And you can read the account of this in the first few chapters of First Kings, how Solomon changes and he, he, he goes from listening to the prophets of God to listening to the whining of his wives. And I don't mean that in a condescending way. He had a lot of wives and they did a lot of whining. You can read it in the scriptures. Um, and, and, uh, and he basically was turned away, that his heart was turned away because he thought he was the one. Years ago, we did a, a study in our, in our church, and, and we're probably going to do it again, called Creating We. And the, there, there are only a few people who are left that remember that series, but I had index cards I used to put up. And the index cards I would hold up, every time somebody said, I or me, I held up a card that said, I, or I held up a card, you can guess what the other one was, it said, me. And every time somebody said, you, I had a card that 
that stood for you. And then my personal favorite pronoun was they. Well, they'll take care of it. They'll do it. They're saying, this, this odd they never seems to be you and me. It's always somebody else, right? And we talked an awful lot about the idea that this mission we have as a church is not the pastor's mission. It is not the elder's mission. It is not individual ministers stuck in little holes to serve and to work until something goes wrong. It is our mission. It's our mission. Solomon's wisdom here in chapter 4 basically says, you are oppressed, you're by yourself, get used to it. But Jesus' wisdom that says we are all in Christ says you are oppressed, you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, change it. Change the world that causes division and breaks. Change the world that says the individual is important, uh, more important than the mission of Jesus Christ. Change the world that says you just go ahead and muddle along until you run into a bump and then we'll come and, and ridicule you or, or in the name of correction and edification we'll come and ridicule you or we'll pray for you or whatever. Um, but change that mentality and say we work together. We are united by Christ into the body of Christ to do what Christ has called us to do. And we are not in our individual holes and slots. We are all moving together. We have with us a a recent um, uh, matriculant. Is that actually a word? I don't know if it is. Um, From some of the Army's advanced training lurking in the back. Ronnie Chase is back with us and... Uh, Ron was here last week in his uniform. And there is one paramount rule in the 20th century after World War II and, and moving into the 21st century. It's been adopted by the Army as well as the Marines who actually invented the idea, that came up with the idea. And it is, if there are wounded on the battlefield, what is the rule? No one is left behind. We will go and get them. We will bring them back. One of the greatest heartaches of the, of the American military institution was what happened in Mogadishu in the 90s when we had to leave behind one of our own and the, the, the enemy just desecrated his body. That broke the hearts of men in the military at that time because that was not what we do. We never leave somebody behind. We always move together. Now, if you've ever been a part of a, a, a group activity, you know that that's the rule. How many of you have ever done tug-of-war? How many of you have ever generally lost at tug-of-war? All right. We, we generally lose at tug-of-war for one of two reasons. Either the other side picked the teams, and they have Hulk Hogan and Hercules on their side, and they gave you olive oil. Or... Um, the team is not pulling together. I was, on a, I was on a tug of war one time in a vacation Bible school and I was a teenager and you know, we're all big and strong. And it was boys against girls. Now you cannot possibly get more embarrassed than when you've got a group of guys and there were fewer of us than the girls. But it was funny. We all walked over, you know, we're all like, hey, how's it going, man? You know, bench 350. You know, we're all, you know, all bragging about our... And all the girls were over in this little huddle right? There was one girl, it might have been my sister's, I'm not sure, but there was one girl that was, that was contriving a plan because they knew teenage boys so well. And we lined up, and I mean, there were probably like 20 girls on one side, and there were like seven or eight guys, but I mean, come on. 
I mean, we were all big and strong, well, strong. Um, <laughs> and, and we thought we were going to take them on. And oh, we walked up, you know, poof, poof, spitting in our hands. All the girls are walking up. Their hair is, you know, they, it was the 90s, so they had the big poofy hair. And, 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 and they, they lined up, you know, and they're looking kind of girly, you know. And they're like, oh, they're not even holding the rope right. Now, you guys know what's going to happen here. I've set the story up, and if you know me well enough, you know what's going to happen. The guys started to pull, and one of our guys was yelling, pull, pull. And one of the other guys was going, this way, this way. And another guy's going, yeah, yeah. Another guy's going, hey, I look good. You know, and we're all doing our thing while the girls are literally, and I'm not, I don't know who thought this up, but whoever it was was a genius. There was one girl in the middle of the pack who was pounding her foot every time she pulled. And they all started pulling together. They just have a natural sense of rhythm. And they, they, they pulled us right into the mud pool, puddle. I mean, every single one of us. I believe the, the last guy was scraggling behind, was in like a muscle shirt looking very buff and did not want to go in the mud, but the girls made sure he did. And, and the point was, the whole idea was, hey, these girls, they just worked together. All the guys were on the rope pulling on their own. And the strength of us pooling was, was so diffused that, yeah, I mean, for a little while we were winning. We were, yeah, we're beefing them out. We're going to, yeah, girls are all going to love us. You know, we put them in a mud puddle. Great plan. Um, <laughs> but ultimately, those little girls beat all of us burly guys. Because rather than laboring in their little hole by themselves, they moved together. They moved together. When we look at Solomon's wisdom and we look at our church and we look at life in general, isn't it better when your family all pulls together? And don't you, after you finish something like that, like you walk away and you go, like, like I don't know about you guys, but my family, we're, we're very, we're kind of spread out. Part of my family's in Massachusetts. We're all over the place. We all get together and man, we do this great thing and we go, wow. Why don't we do that more often? And almost always, the second thought is, because I really don't like them. But we, we, you know, we, we, we pull together and we say, man, that was awesome. Our family was pulling together. Or, or you have a sickness in your family and the whole family gets together and they pull together and it's like, man, that's awesome. I wish it was like this all the time. But it's always the exception to the rule. Or we do something at the church and we do this massive project and it's amazing. And everybody goes, wow, that was so cool. We were all working together. I wish that it was like that all the time. Too bad it isn't. You know why it isn't? Because left to our own devices, we exalt the individual and we get into our little ditch and we dig because we're American Christians. Now we're sinners on top of that, so it makes it even worse. But we have this mentality that I can do it on my own. You know, in the process of the series that we did, Creating We, and we talked about it, you know where most of the issues came from that we struggled with as a church? They came from the fact that people were not willing to say to other people that they did not understand how things worked. And so you get frustrated. We subtitled the series, if you haven't heard this, Creating We was subtitled, Conversations You Have in the Car on the Way Home from Church. And I know you know those kind of conversations. What was up with the pastor, man? His hair was funky. Did you know, you know, did you know that one of the singers' fly was down the entire time? You know, people could really profit from that kind of wisdom. Oh, the children's ministry was terrible. I mean, oh, those kids, they were so bored. Well, why do you know that they were bored? Well, they said. 
You know, it's always the they. It's so that's one of the reasons. If you're visiting with us, um, we we have an open policy with all of our ministries. If you want to go down in the nursery with your child the first time you visit to see how things go, you're welcome to. If you want to go to the children's ministry with your child and make sure that that everything is okay, you're allowed to. We have all kinds of of uh, back screen che- background checking and stuff like that, but you're still free to do that. Um, you are free to comment on pretty much anything, not during the message, but I'm always open and available to hear feedback and thoughts about the message about music about things i spend most of my time during the week dealing with that stuff talking with people about those things because it's not about us it's not about me about us you know in the next couple of months we are going to start rolling out we really just started working on the 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 final stages of the merger of our church and i got to tell you when you actually get the documents that are coming out of this discussion, if you're not forewarned, you will be shocked. So I'm forewarning you now. We as the elders, as we, as we sat and we've talked and we've prayed and we've discussed, we've really kind of come to the understanding that unfortunately the way most American churches operate is the idea of we're all laboring in little holes and then we build kind of a corporate structure around those little holes to try to safeguard rather than saying this is our mission and our vision and we work together. And churches often become just a large collection of many ministries rather than one ministry of Jesus Christ. And as we, as we embrace our vision of creating environments where people encounter Jesus and journey together, we really have to see things through the lenses of those statements and ask ourselves the question, how do we journey together while creating environments where people encounter Jesus? How do we encounter Jesus as we journey together? How do we create better ways for people to journey together and encounter Jesus? And we have to filter those things. And I've got to tell you, some of the things that have come from the elders, I mean, they, they, it's been revolutionary. It's been crazy. It's been cool. Um, they, some of the things that I, I've come up with, they've said, ah, I don't think so. And that's, that's, that's fine. You know, but, but, and, and we're going away, I mean, see on the schedule, there's an elders retreat scheduled for June. That does not mean that we're going on a yacht somewhere. You know, we're going, oh, it's such hard work being elders. We actually are going away to actually work on this document to be able to come back to the church at the end of June and say, this is the direction God wants us, us to go as a church. And we, we try to make those decisions as best we can as a community, not as a board. We're not a board of elders. We are a community of leaders that work together. We don't vote. I mean, a lot of times people think the elders' meetings, most of the elders' meetings are actually bizarre jokes, mostly de- delivered by Bob. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but the elders' meetings, we don't, we, I don't know that we've ever had an elders' meeting where we've actually taken a vote. We've actually said, all right, all in favor, all opposed. We just, we're looking at the scriptures and we're looking at the mission Jesus has given us and we look at things, we say, how should we do this? And if we come, if somebody says, well, I think it should be done this way and the rest of us are kind of like, nah, I don't know about that. Let's pray about it. Let's think about it. We set it aside and we pray about it and we think about it and we come back to it another time. It's one of the reasons why it takes us so long to make decisions. People have asked us, you know, what's the new name going to be? We don't know. And the reason we don't know is every time we bring together a list and we go, these, these look good, there's some hesitation. And whenever we hesitate, we kind of go, all right, let's, let's just make sure that God wants us to do this. Now, that's, I know that's frustrating sometimes, but, but it's better, as I told somebody one time, uh, mushrooms grow overnight, 
oak trees take a little while. I stole that from somebody. It's probably Mark Twain, but he's dead, so it doesn't count. Um, But we're delivering this because here's the deal. Jesus leveled the playing field. Jesus set up a situation where the church is supposed to operate together. It is not operating together for my agenda and your agenda and his agenda and his agenda and his agenda and his agenda. It is coming together on Jesus' agenda where two or three are gathered. How? In my name. Two or three are gathered on my business. I will be there. But when two or three gather on his business, his business, and his business, And I would offer one last practical encouragement. If you ever have a moment where you sit there and go, maybe I'm not listening to those around me. There's a very easy solution to that. Solomon probably could have benefited from. Rehoboam definitely could have benefited from. And it is this. Shut up and listen. Listen. How many times does Jesus encounter people and they go, and Jesus throws a question at them that totally throws them sideways and they continue going, and Jesus walks away and I know it's in his mind because Jesus has a crazy sense of humor. Jesus walks away and goes, man, I wish he'd shut up. I wish he'd listen. And it's a heartbreak because, I mean, Jesus is looking at his creation going, man, you guys, if you would just listen, if you would just get in synergy with me, man, you would not believe the miracles and supernatural things that would happen in your life. But because you will not shut up and listen to me, you're you're living in religion and emptiness and vanity. And that is all just blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. Father, we, we are human beings. And I kind of picked on our Americanism, but just by human beings, we just think about what is best for us. God, as a, as a body, as a church, we want to be so much more. We, we look around, Father, we look around and see the things that you alone can do whether it's, it's the guests that you bring into our body every Sunday because you are moving and we know that you use us and you use technology and you use all those things. But, but God, you are doing things. We look at the relationships and the, and the hope and the challenges and everything that we've been facing and just realize, God, this is all about you and it's all about your son. And Lord, I am so thankful for our church and our body and the, the, the leaders that you have brought into leadership in our church and just the amazing energy that they bring to everything. Lord, help us to be in a situation, to change our situation, so that working together to see the greater work of your mission is not the exception, but is the rule. Father, I don't know everybody in the room as you are drawing people to you, those who have already committed their lives to you through Christ, that you are drawing them closer. Those who are sitting on the edge and saying, I'm not sure that I'm really ready to make this commitment, that you are drawing them. Lord, thank you that it is not our abilities and our powers that do those things, but your spirit at work. May we pray that you would work in our hearts. Lord, that your spirit would continue to draw, that you would lead us 
to point all men to Christ. That we would continue to heal and mend and build and grow as your son Jesus commissioned us to do. We pray this in Jesus' name.